who strengthens me. Does that mean we have superpowers? If I can do all things, that means I can fly, I can teleport, I'm faster than a spitting bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. What does this mean? I can do all things. You know, it's kind of a dangerous verse. People could use it like the name it and claim it crowd and just decide that it means anything goes and we can just do anything we want to do. Now that's not what it says. All right, because he's the one empowering us. And so why is he empowering us? And what is he empowering us to do? Everything we can do because he's empowering us. And that's what we're looking at tonight. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for his faithfulness to guide and direct our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. We thank you for the priesthood that we have in Christ, whereby uh, all of us enter within the veil, Father. We're here together. We're here as a corporate body in, in Christ, and we just rejoice in these privileges and these blessings in the power that comes through this fellowship one with another. We call upon your, fel- your power now tonight as we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for God the Holy Spirit and his teaching ministry. We uh, look forward to being fed tonight as you provide. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have a microphone ready to go. So uh, if we have any lead-off questions, anything for Q&A night? Or not? You have a faded question. Okay. We'll save it. When it's... Yeah, yeah, put it in an email. That'll work. We did have a question as it relates to predestination and, and that kind of a thing, so I can start with that. You can explain predestination in about 30 seconds, so that's uh, good. <laughs> now these are the issues that cause um, a lot of debate, and they've been debating it since the Reformation, even before. They were debating this going back to Augustine, and even in Jewish circles, of course, they were debating this going back to Old Testament times. And it really centers on two things that seem to be in tension. The fact that God is sovereign and directs the affairs of man and the fact that human beings have volition. We make choices. And so uh, when those two things collide or when they coincide, uh, what wins? You know, what is there a Trump suit? You know, what uh, does the sovereignty trump volition or does volition trump sovereignty? And in, in debating that back and forth, I don't think it's wrong to consider and to debate and to ask questions. But the uh, fundamentally, though, it is even just based on a false premise that uh, neither one trumps the other, because if God Himself overrules and trumps sovereign, uh, uses sovereignty to trump volition, then God Himself is violating His plan, and He's violating His own good pleasure. God takes no pleasure in coercion; He takes pleasure in in, in free will that uh, he loves the cheerful giver, that we have to do gr- not grudgingly or uh, under compulsion. God does not love compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And so sovereignty does not trump free will because God will not violate his own plan or purpose. Neither does free will trump sovereignty because God's not a slave to the creatures that he invested that free will in to begin with. And so both are true. And I think to find a a theological position that is, I don't want to say in between, but is neither Calvinistic nor Arminian, I think forms a third view, forms an immediate view of, uh, of these things, and it's very worthwhile. And that's our view. Our view sustains sovereignty and free will at the same time. 
And so if you want a verse, I think, that goes well with this, I like 1 Peter 1, I like uh, Romans 8. Um, and so when you're looking at this, let, let me just grab 1 Peter. Um, where's it? Second Peter? No, it's 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Because you can put your finger on this and you can say, okay, this lays it out there. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Notice now, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now it's going to go on and say some other things after that, but that's fine. Just notice, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So when you're studying election, that's what this choice is about. When you're studying predestination, that's what this choice is about. All right. And so when you're studying these things from God's end of things, you have to accept what the Scripture says, and we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that's the orientation. That is the plain language of the text. And we accept it for what it says, especially when we have another text that agrees with it. All right, so if I make a choice that's according to something, right? If God does it, if I do it, if anybody does it, and I'm going to make a choice according to whatever, whatever the criteria is, okay? In this case, the criteria is foreknowledge, okay? That criteria then is, is what the Bible says is happening. So it's not an unconditional election, as Calvinism maintains. The you in TULIP is unconditional election which says that God elects based upon nothing but His own sovereignty, based upon His own will, His own intention, His own wisdom, His own sovereignty Himself, all right? They deny it's not according to any foreseen faith on the part of the, of the elect. See, they, they don't like the idea that His, his uh, election or His predestination is according to anything. And so they put the you in tulip as unconditional election. And the, the problem with that you is that this here is not a you. <laughs> this here is an according to. This is according to foreknowledge. All right. Same thing when you go to Romans 8. And we all know Romans 8.28, so let's look at Romans 8.29. <laughs> and uh, we'll see what it says. It's just easy to find. Um... Of course, Romans 8.28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Tell me more. And it says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So again, there's an order, there's a logical order, and it starts with foreknowledge. And then it goes to predestination. And then it goes, look where it goes after that. He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. Then verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. So there's the calling. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so when you, when you study these things, and, and you have the calling here, you also have the election and that's in the same context. In verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And we realize that's what the calling is according to God's own purpose. But just like with 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, what starts everything going here is his foreknowledge because verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. So foreknowledge is the criteria in both Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1. Foreknowledge is the criteria for everything else that then follows. 
And uh, we want to be clear on that. So anyway, that, that was an email question and, and I imagine there's going to be more follow-up on that as well. The person that asked that question is not here tonight, so I can't ask if that, if that is sufficient. Did you have something on that as well? Sure. We have a clarification follow-up question. When the Calvinists are asked about this verse in Romans, mm -hmm. they leave it. They leave foreknow as just fuzzy. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about what he foreknew. Right. And so that is a question: What did he foreknow? Well, th there you go. So he foreknew the, the real obvious answer. But let me give some some fake answers first. Um, he foreknew left-handed redheads, right? He foreknew uh, Washingtonians who wear glasses. He foreknew, I mean, think about what the, obviously, he foreknew who would respond by faith to the offer of, the offer of salvation, who would believe in Christ for eternal life. That's the, that's the obvious thing. But here's what they do. They say, no, no, God foreknows everybody. You know, because he knows everybody that's ever lived, everybody that will ever live, everybody that, that uh, will, you know. So he, God foreknows everybody. And I said, that can't be right. Because if that's how you're going to take this, then everybody gets saved. And we know that not everybody gets saved. Because everyone he foreknows, he predestines. So that can't be right. It's got to be he foreknows their positive volition response to the gospel. That they will place their faith in Christ. That they will respond. And so he knows who responds. He knows who rejects the gospel. That's, that's clear. And then obviously God's not a dummy. He's not going to predestine somebody that's going to reject the gospel. And so by, by uh, basing predestination on his foreknowledge of who will freely accept, then uh, I think it just comes together and harmonizes beautifully in, uh, in those things. Also, by the way, they also like to redefine foreknowledge and make it an equivalent statement to predestination. But when they do that, they end up with a tautology, right? I love the word tautology. They end up with those whom he predestined, he also predestined which is nonsensical, right? But they tell you that he knows, the only way he knows the future is because he's decreed it. He has determined, he has predestined that that's what's going to happen. That's why he knows the future. And that is such a flawed view of foreknowledge. God knows, God knows things that never do happen, but they could happen if, uh, if other choices got made. Can I throw one more thing in? Uh -huh. They also say that for God to hold salvation, salvation subject to our choice, mm -hmm. it diminishes God. I think it's exactly opposite. Exactly. It magnifies, it magnifies God, God to God allow His creation to choose mm -hmm. Him. Amen. That's right. Alright, so I appreciate that. And uh, that's uh, that goes into some larger areas too about free will, about love, about true love, about the fact that if if you force it, that's not love. All right, uh, and if you uh, if you make uh, if you make your child apologize to his sibling and he doesn't want to, well, that's coercion and that's not genuine. Uh, if uh, if you force your child to thank their mother for the dinner, again, that's coercion. That's not free will. But when they genuinely say, "Mom, I love you," "Mom, thank you for the dinner," "Mom," you know, then there's a an expression of love there that has value. That actually is genuine. It's uncoerced. It's voluntary, and and that's what the father wants because he loves his son that way, and he wants us to love his son that way. And that's why that's the whole plan of God right there in a in a nutshell. So, all right. Anything else tonight? Any other questions before we return to the Philippians study?
going once, going twice. All right. Thank you, Chris. We are looking at grace-giving gratitude. The fact that the Philippians did the grace-giving and Paul had the gratitude and he is thanking them for the funds that they sent through Epaphroditus. Philippians chapter 4. And we realize that uh, Epaphroditus was the courier who not only brought the funds, but then he stayed local to where Paul was. I believe it was Ephesus. But wherever Paul was, that Epaphroditus not only brought the funds, but he stayed there and uh, continued to minister to Paul's needs. And even uh, through sickness, through uh, almost to the point of death, he stayed faithful in ministering to Paul's needs in, uh, in this capacity. And so really... Um, this takes us from uh, verse 10 down to verse 19. And right now we're kind of wrapping up 12 and looking at verse 13, I think is where we left off on Sunday. And so just taking it back from the beginning again, verse 10 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned the whole time, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Speaking from want, remember, we highlighted that. The idea that you can, you can address the want without speaking from the want. That it's not the want, the lack or the deficiency that's not the origin of this speech. It's not the motivation for this speech. He's not speaking from the want. He has learned to be content in whatever circumstances he is. And that's the, the whole summary of this, of this uh, paragraph centers on contentment. The fact that where God places us, we thank Him for placing us where we need to be. And we don't disagree with the plan of God. And we don't argue with God and say, God, I really think I, I should be in a, in, a, in a higher income than, uh, than you put me in right now, Father. You know, or I think I, I, uh, I really don't deserve all this sickness. I should have better health than I have right now. Or uh, you know, and just disagreeing with God when He's placed you where He's placed you in, in, in everything, from finances to health to, to career to everything. God is the, is the sovereign of our life. And so wherever He has, we should be content to be in His will. And uh, so it says, I've learned to be content. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. And this, uh, this is what we all want to get to. We want to learn these things, we want to know these things, and we want to be initiated into the mysteries, as it were, of uh, simultaneous hunger and fullness and simultaneous abundance and poverty. Because that's what we have in the body of Christ. And that's, uh, that's the issue there. All right. This then becomes the backdrop for I can do all things. And uh, this is where we're going to pick up the, the issue. I think for most of these things though, the, I think the, the difficult part of translating these verses is the fact that the verbs we expect are not the verbs we find. The verbs we expect by reading the English are not the verbs we find in the Greek. And so the same, and when we're, and I illustrated this on Sunday, the, the whole get along in verse 12 you know, that's, that's problematic because we're from Texas and, and we understand get along. That's, uh, that's a particular thing here in Texas. And that's not what Paul's talking about, all right? And likewise, live. I know how to live in prosperity. 
And the fact is, is that there is no verb in the Greek for get along and there is no verb in the Greek for live. And really the verb uh, in the first aspect is I know how to be humbled. It's a passive tense verb. I know how to be humbled. And uh, it just so happens because he's talking in a, in a financial context that the translators have decided to render the, uh, the humility there as getting along with humble means, right? I know how to be humbled. I, I don't see anything wrong with just rendering it, I know how to be humbled. And because we, we, we get it, we understand it's in a financial sense. The second verb, to live in prosperity. Again, there's no verb for living. I mean, we know about zoe and zao and bios. And all. We've got lots of verbs for living. And this is none of them, all right? It's, uh, this is, I know how to abound. Parasuo speaks of abundance. And I know how to abound. And that's an active voice. So being humble is in the passive voice and abounding is in the active voice. And to me, I would rather just keep it simple instead of trying to get, you know, flowery with the, with the English rendering on this. Uh, I know how to be humbled. I know how to abound. And, and leave it at that. Because we're talking financially in the, in the whole context anyway, so let it go. And then in any and everything, like thing better than circumstance, but that's okay. In any and everything, I have been initiated. That's the, 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 the verb mueo. And it's in, again, it's in the passive voice. So Paul isn't saying he did this, it was done to him. I have been initiated into the mysteries. All right, initiated into the mysteries. And this is loaded language. This is absolutely loaded language. In the, in the first century Roman, Greco-Roman world, this, this, uh, there would have been no confusing this on the part of the readers in Philippi when they would have seen the verb mueo used in this paragraph. To be initiated into the, ministry, into the mysteries. I expect a lot of those believers in Philippi are coming out of those mysteries when they got saved, or coming out of those mysteries when they uh, when they uh, became a part of the, the body of Christ there in uh, in Philippi. And just like in Corinth, he's preaching about that temple of Aphrodite. Some of those ladies in that church came from that temple. That's why it's pretty touchy when he's talking about those kind of issues in uh, in 1 Corinthians. Same thing here with the Philippians. It's a Roman city. It's a Roman colony. And it's it's and we know historically there were mystery cults right there in that in that territory. And so when he says I've been initiated into the mysteries, that's pretty loaded language. And we want to be able to embrace it ourselves. We want to be able to embrace it ourselves that we are inducted, if you will, into the uh, the the uh, mental attitude, to the mindset of simultaneous uh, hungerful. Um, uh, prosperous poverty, right? Because it's the simultaneous realities that uh, one brother's hungry and one brother's full, one, one brother's wealthy and one brother's poor. And we're all together in the body of Christ where these things happen simultaneously. That's what he says here. So I have learned, I know, and I've been initiated into the mysteries of uh, being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. And they're all true at the same time. This then uh, establishes the context for I can do all things. And the can do is another issue that we have to recognize because it's a verb for strength and it's a verb for ability. And so the point of study was point three in the outline here. This mindset 
is not only a contentment, but also a competence. A contentment, but a also a competence. That is, you are able. You have competence. You can do. Not just as a mindset. You know, it's one thing to be, you know, to have an attitude that says, okay, I'm content, I'm content, I'm content. But then you fall apart when it comes to actually doing it. When it comes to actually living it out. Right? So you can have the thinking of contentment you also need the actual competence, the actual uh, making it happen, which is what we see here. I presently continuously have strength. That's what it is. I have strength. I have been strengthened. I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life. Really, it comes down to uh, the, uh, conditional circumstances of personal life. And uh, if you want, uh, because I think it's, it's clear, I mean, he keeps switching back and forth between kind of a food realm and a money realm, and, and now he's talking about uh, strength for, for doing stuff. It's, it's really, he's illustrating a broad spectrum of personal life and the things that we encounter just by being people, by living in this world, fallen people in a fallen world. And so all kinds of circumstances. I think this is the this is where we get our wedding vows, right? This is why you get a man and a woman and they stand there and, and what do they promise, right? For richer or for poor. Well, golly, that's uh, the expression we have right here, right? I know how to be humbled and I know how to abound. Uh, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. Uh, and so all of these extremes or all of this spectrum of, of personal life, uh, these conditional circumstances of personal life, wherever God places us, He's giving us the strength to, to thrive, to, to bear fruit, to, to continue on in the plan of God. So uh, my translation of the verse, I presently continuously have strength for all conditional circumstances of personal life in the one presently continuously enduing me with power. He presently continuously endues you with power, all of us. That's what He does. That's why the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is what it is, and the, the empowerment is what it is in, uh, in the church age particularly. All right. And so, yes, the I can do all things, this doesn't mean you can uh, bend steel bars with your bare hands or stop bullets or, or go out there and become a superhero vigilante and whatever and say, I can do all things. No, all right, in context, that means you can stay faithful to the plan of God wherever He puts you in, in your temporal life circumstances. See. And so really um, that's true in the sense of, okay, you're a single man and, and uh, God's in, uh, strengthening you and you have the ability and to stay faithful and fulfill His will for your life and, uh, and you're not going to be terrified of switching and becoming a married man. Uh, well, guess what? It's a different circumstance, but the same power is with you, all right? The same power. And or um, if, if, you're, if you're widowed, right? You think, well, new circumstances. Guess what? God's power is there too to strengthen you for all circumstances. And, and so if we, if we want to use our circumstances as the cop-out, as the excuse to say, well, you know, I would follow you, Lord, but first I have to, uh, you know, I just planted a field, I got to test out my oxen or, or whatever. You know, there's, uh, wasn't that the example? They had, Jesus was talking about that. People were going to follow him, but, you know, First I've got to go bury my father, or first I've got to, I just married a wife, or I just did this or did that, you know. I'd be glad to follow you, Lord, it's just first I got these other things. You know, wait a minute. 
You're in the circumstances He's putting you in. So pick up your cross and follow Him. His strength is there for you in all circumstances. And that's what we see here. So all right, Um, we we looked at most of these on Sunday, but we ran out of time. We were in Ephesians, so we did look at these other examples. And I think just for the sake of time tonight, just real quickly, if you if you weren't here on Sunday, remember in John 15 the parable of the of the vine, and the expectation that we're going to bear fruit can only happen when we're abiding in Christ. So John 15 verse four, five, and seven speak about abiding in Christ. And the power that then comes for us to bear fruit. And so uh, verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit. So think about can and cannot in terms of ability, power, strength. As the uh, branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The only way you're going to bear fruit or do anything in the Christian way of life is by abiding in Christ. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, that just says it all right there, right? I mean, what a, what a perfect parallel text to go with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, uh, you know, the flip side of that is I can do nothing if I'm not using Christ's strength in, uh, in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this keeps us from getting all crazy with the name and claim it insanity because if we're abiding in his word and his word is abiding in us, that means he's shaping our thinking. That means he's working in and through us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And, and he's not working in us to ask for those crazy things that our carnality wants. Okay, That's, uh, that's not what this is about. Alright, so we have that. 2 Corinthians 3.5. Again, I'm trying to get through these and not belabor them because we did address them on Sunday morning. 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God. So don't be getting any delusions of adequacy. Recognize that it's not you you are completely inadequate. I am completely inadequate. All of us, we're pathetic sinners fallen in Adam, but saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the adequacy we have now, we didn't deserve to get saved and we don't deserve any adequacy we have now. It all comes from by His grace. We are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. I think the contrast is whatever you can boast in, quit boasting in it. If you have a tendency, Paul said, you know, I could boast more than all you put together. He says, I got earthly credentials you guys couldn't dream of. And he says, I, I count that all but rubbish, count it all but, but uh, feces. He says, just flush it, get rid of it. He says, grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so we should consider ourselves in the same capacity. Nothing comes from us, it all comes from God. Our adequacy is from God. So if you want to be an adequate pastor, an adequate deacon, an adequate Sunday school teacher, an adequate evangelist, an adequate um, husband, father, whatever, all right, and trying to measure up. Well, he'll measure you up because he's working, and that's uh, you got to let him do that work. So, if you, if you want to use your own strength, forget it. You don't measure up. Chapter twelve, verses nine and ten. Paul wanted the thorn in the flesh to go away. God doesn't give you a test so that the first trigger prayer out of your mouth is "Take it away." 
And then God says, oh, okay, since you asked me to take it away, I'll take it away. No, He gave it to you for a purpose. That purpose is to strengthen you and it may take uh, longer than you want it to. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. When you want your problems to go away, what you're saying is, I don't want to see God perfect His power in me. That's the only way it's going to happen. Is He's going to make you weak so that He can show His strength. He can show His sufficiency. He can show His grace. And Paul finally accepted that. It took him three times, you know. And I'm not, I'm not claiming I would be any better. It'd take me five or six or ten times, right? But Paul it took him three times. And when he got that answer, he finally said, "Okay, then, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me." If I don't accept this, if I don't accept this weakness, then I'm not going to see God exhibit His power in me. And Paul said, I want that. I want Him to do that. So therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The secret to divine strength is to uh, accept your own human weakness and let God do the work. All right, Ephesians 3.16 Go to Him in prayer. Study the length and width and height and depth. Center yourself in every dimension of doctrine imaginable. Live in the Word of God. And uh, make this your prayer as well. Paul, Paul is expressing this in terms of a prayer. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Understand, that that's significant. When you're going to the Father in prayer... You're naming the name of, of the Father on that basis, saying, Father, I'm yours, and uh, He's going to deal with you accordingly. And uh, thank God that He does, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Let me reread that again. Yep, that's what it says. Okay, It doesn't say that He would grant you according to what you've earned or deserved. It doesn't say that He would grant you according to what you ask for. No, it's according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. You need more power? It's right there. Ask Him for it. But understand, that means you're asking for more weakness. Because it's in the weakness that He's going to give you that more power. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And this is uh, just a glorious thing. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. You know, until you fully embrace this kind of power, you're not getting breadth and length and height and depth. You're getting, you're, you've got just kind of a, a one-dimensional little finite view of, of the truth of God's Word. We've got to go deeper than that. We want all the dimensions of God's Word. To Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. and It's, it's uh, something to behold. All right. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord, be strengthened in the Lord, and in the strength of His might. You know how many power words are right there in that verse? Be strengthened in the Lord, or by the Lord. Passive imperative. He does it. Let Him do it to you. In the strength of His might. And so uh, we have the imperative and then we have two more power words and the strength of His mind. Put on the full armor of God. Understand the day and age in which we live. This is, uh, we live in the, in the present evil age. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. So be strengthened. Quit trying to do your own strength. Be strengthened. 
with His strength so that you can endure. You will stand fast. Colossians 1.11 Are we clear on passive imperatives? Are we good with that? We know active voice where you have to do something. Passive voice, you let it get done to you. Okay? And uh, I, I don't know. Some folks think that passive imperatives are the easiest things in the world because you just let it happen. I think they're the hardest things in the world because you've got to let it happen. And uh, there's just a human tendency to not wait on the Lord. There's a human tendency to, to try to do it yourself or to, uh, you know, well, maybe you start to let it happen, but as you start to let it happen, you realize that's not what you bargained for or it hurts or it's not pleasant. And so then you want to stop it. And God says, no, let it happen. Be strengthened, which means submit to the weakness that He can strengthen you with. And, uh, and in a lot of ways, passive imperatives are hard because you've got to volitionally submit and, and let God do what He's doing. And uh, that, uh, that becomes a whole faith rest uh, testing all on its own. All right, Colossians 1.11. Paul had never been to Colossae. He knew a couple of the people there, but he'd never been there. And he wanted to meet them. And he's thankful for them. Thankful for the ministry Epaphras had. But he says in verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Say, You ever reach out to somebody you've never met him before, but you've been praying for him for years? And it's kind of fun. Um, Turner Perkins just got ordained in Jan- on January 13th and, uh, and uh, I never met him I know his dad, I know his parents for years but uh, Turner is B3's age, he's a young man and he just got ordained and, and I suspect he's going to be looking for a church at some point I don't know but um, I just reached out and said hey you don't know who I am but I've been praying for you and thought I'd say hi and, and, uh, and there you go uh, this is what Paul's doing here in, Col- in Colossians Never met him, but he's been praying for him. And this is what he's been praying. He says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I wish more Christians would pay attention to that. The Christian way of life is defined right there in a nutshell. It's not just believing in Jesus and waiting to go to heaven when you die. There is, there is the whole Christian walk right there, a walk manner in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he says, strengthened with all power. Not, not just a lot of power, or all. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So strengthened with all power. How much do you need? Well, you're getting all of it. It's there for the asking. All right? The omnipotent hand of God that created this universe is going to empower you to do everything His good pleasure calls for. Finally, then, 1 Timothy 1 12. Say, stop, stop. I've got too much power as it is. 1 Timothy 1 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now why would the Lord consider Saul of Tarsus faithful and put him into service? At the point that he called him on the Damascus Road, he was actually on his way there to murder Christians. 
but he considered him faithful. See, God is the God that sees all things from the end to the beginning, and uh, and he sees the the, the work that's going to happen. He sees everything that's going to happen, and and uh, the failures along the way, the victories along the way, and everything else. And so he considered Paul faithful. So he put him into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Well, there's strength. Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. So um, really this is the mindset we all should have. We all should have the recognition that what he's called us to do we're empowered to do. That if we feel like we can't do it then we're using language uh, that's not a Christian vocabulary of I cannot. The Christian vocabulary is I can. And I can do all things. That if he's called me to it then here it is. He's strengthening it. He's strengthening me. And so that he expects me to, to be everything that he's designed me for. To be a pastor, to be a husband, to be a father, to be a missionary, to be an evangelist, whatever it is. Alright? Whatever it is. Alright. Now a couple of things under this. Let's look at some vocabulary. We start with the verb eskuo. It's a present active indicative. This is uh, back in Philippians again with I can do. I am strengthened. I am strong. Iskuo, I-S-C-H-U-O, Iskuo. And I wish I had a little helpful hint or a little memory jog or anything to help you remember that Iskueo, Iskuo, is a word of strength. But uh, I've been trying for 25 years now to connect that with something and I have not ever been successful. Um, It's not related to ichthus, it's not related to fish, it's not related to uh, other things you might try to link it with. It's just uh, this bizarre little word that starts with an I. Iskus, I-S-C-H-U-S is the noun for strength and then the verb is iskuo. And so um, you've got 28 uses of the verb. That's Strong's number 2480 with 28 New Testament uses. Uh, You've got 10 uses of the noun. Iskus is the noun number 2479. And actually there's more than just those two expressions. Um, There's a total of eight, and I think I did this if I outsmarted myself. We'll see if this works. Almost. It's kind of what I intended. What I intended was to show you this. All right, this root panel. Huh. Didn't need all those other panels, but there's the root panel. All right. Uh, If you do your own word studies with Logos and you you bring up the word study report then uh, these are the panels that get loaded then, alright? And if you want to reorder them you can reorder them. But um, just real quickly, the top panel uh, is your word, is is Iskuo, and it shows uh, your your, your favorite lexicons, your favorite dictionaries, and you can look at any of them or all of them and any of that. Uh, Below that is your translation wheel. This is how Iskus is translated in the, in the Greek New Testament as translated by the New American Standard Bible. 28 uses there. And quite a variety. Could, able, strong, healthy, uh, you know, other ways there. Then in the Septuagint, it's used 67 times. It's used 67 times for an assortment of Hebrew expressions. What I wanted to highlight tonight was this root. Alright. Because this is the entire Iskus family right here, including some stepchildren that usually don't get invited 
to uh, reunions and things. All right. And so when you, sometimes it's useful to, to look at one or two of them, or sometimes it's useful to look at more of them. Uh, but this is the root then, and, and it'll list them for you, uh, starting with iskaros, okay, which is an adjective. Um, iskuo is the verb. Iskus is the noun. Those are the two that I had on the slide just a moment ago. But then there's a compound, kat iskuo. That puts the prefix kata in front of the verb iskuo. And kata is usually an intensifier. Sometimes kata means down. Sometimes kata means against or is just an intensification prefix. Uh, then there's a di iskarizomai where you have a dia prefix and then you have the middle voice ending of, of the omai ending. So di iskarizomai yeah, iskarizomai there's a compound word there. It's only used twice. Uh, then there's n iskuo ex iskuo, epi iskuo so, I mean, your basic root verb can have a, can have a, a kata, a dia, an n, an x, or an epi. could have any one of five different prefixes uh, tacked onto the front end of iskuo. So, that can be kind of fun. And uh, looking at all those. All right, so putting those things together then, there are eight words from the iskus root and all together, 76 uses in the New Testament. And I think it's worthwhile. I think it's useful to see the kind of power God supplies. So we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at those. In fact, we'll do that tonight. And then when we get done with that, we're going to move on to the next verb, which is a passive, all right, of, uh, of endu, right? And I like the English word endu. We don't use it very much in... Uh, in, in fact, I don't know the last time I used the word endu in a non-church setting, right? Um, or endow, endowment, I don't know. Uh, but the verb endu namao is, uh, is, if I use the English word endu, then it's going to help me remember the Greek word endu namao. Um, and so we're going to look at that next. And then we're going to take it in this order and we probably won't get through tonight. Uh, so whatever we don't get through tonight, we'll pick up on, on Sunday morning. Um, but the first verb is an active voice, the second verb is a participle, and it's a passive voice. And so it communicates what we're reading here in the English um, that I am being strengthened. I can do, I have all strength. I have strength for all things through uh, he who is strengthening me, right? I am being strengthened. And that's why it's a passive, because I'm being strengthened. And as long as he keeps on strengthening me, well, then I actively have strength. That's the connection that's made there. So we're going to look at both of these. We're going to look at iskus, and we're going to look at dunamao. And, and really, when you have dunamao, we have uh, the verb for dynamite. I mean, we've got, there's real power in that. That's the dunamis, power, ability, dunamao. But then en dunamao means he's putting the dynamite inside of you. <laughs> he is enduing you with his his dunamis, with his power. Okay, so does that feel uh, impressive? Does that feel? Um, I mean, the the power that created the universe, and he's putting it inside of you. In fact, that's why we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Say, God dwelling in us, and that's uh, that's a marvelous thing too. So, uh, eight words from the iskus root have seventy six uses in the New Testament. We're not going to look at all seventy six, but we've got a pretty good sampling of them there. And then uh, in dunamao, uh, there are 10 words from the dunamai root, 
And there are 390 uses in the New Testament there. There is power all throughout dunamis and dunamao and uh, all kinds of power throughout the New Testament. And that really, like the uh, the priesthood we're studying in the book of Hebrews, I think the uh, the sadness is there's so much power available to Christians and almost nobody's using it. It's uh, because the power comes by living in the Word of God. And well, who wants to do that? You know, and it's, it takes study and it takes discipline and it takes work. But for those Christians who submit to the plan of God for being a disciple, there is power available everywhere. And uh, as we read in Colossians already, um, all power, it's all available. It's the infinite power of God that, that works in and through us for His good pleasure. All right, so we'll start with Luke 11. And we'll see some of this iskus, some of this strength. Luke 11. And then I think a lot of these are going to be familiar to most of us for different reasons. When you think about strength, um, and boy, I spend a lot of time considering this, some of the different details out of this chapter. Jesus is casting out demons and then he gets accused of uh, using Satan's power to do it. Like that makes any sense. So he was casting out a demon, he was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the man spoke. Well, there you go. And crowds were amazed. That wasn't a healing, it was just an exorcism. Get rid of the demon and the, the affliction is gone. How about that? And uh, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Well, what motivates that? Right? Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Well, wait a minute, he just cast out a demon and now you want a sign to validate the sign? When does that stop? You know, this is a sign. You want another sign to prove that this sign was legit? What, you know, and then, well, do you need another sign after that to prove that next sign is legit? Or how? When does that stop? Anyway, he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. Kind of amusing. You know, I think Jesus was amused that they would accuse him of using Satan's power to cast out Satan. I mean, really. You know, um, if that being the case, and he doesn't really deny that it's true, but he just says, look, this is what happens. A kingdom divided against itself, it's not going to stand very long. That's going to come crumbling down. And um, and it might even be very descriptive of what Satan's kingdom is like and how uh, with their uh, insanity and their arrogance that they are uh, not in a lot of like-mindedness amongst themselves. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And, and then he turns it right back on him and says, well, if, if, if I'm doing this, then how are you guys doing it? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? They will be your judges. And, and that just exposes it right there that they have this racket going on with their exorcism and uh, they're, they're playing with this kind of power too. Anyway, but then he goes on to say, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And here they are all impressed with casting out demons and he says, yeah, it's just, you know, just finger work. He says, it's just the finger of God. You know, we're just, to cast out a demon is like, you know, picking a, you know, whatever. You're just flicking a, flicking a booger off your finger or whatever. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to do. 
okay? If by the finger of God, <laughs> all right. But now an iskus shows up in verse 21. Here they're all impressed with different things. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. And this uses the term that we're looking at tonight in terms of iskus and iskaros and, and, and this, this root that we're looking at. So a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. That makes sense. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him uh, all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And so, okay, how strong do you think you are? Because there's always a bigger fish, right? What happens when somebody bigger than you comes along? And so the point is, are we going to rely on our own strength or are we going to be relying on God's strength? Because if we're using God's strength, there's nobody bigger than God. If we're using God's strength, then who's overpowering that? Nobody. And uh, this is, by the way, the doctrine of... um, the fact that believers cannot be demon-possessed. Because how would a demon come in and possess your soul when the Holy Spirit lives there? See. And in order to, uh, to take over your, your mind and your thinking and control your body and, and do what demon possession evidently does would require, first of all, for a stronger man than the strong man in there to come in and to bind him and strip off his armor and, you know, it's just not happening. Not when uh, you're a believer priest in Jesus Christ and you have God the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Maybe an Old Testament believer like Saul could be demonized and afflicted, but not a New Testament believer with a permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. All right, so he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And uh, I tell you, uh, I'm, I'm with him, okay? I'm with Jesus, and, and that's it. And the strength that He gives me, that's, that's what I need. And anything else, I don't want any part of that. More that comes in this chapter too. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, you ever wonder, I mean, when He casts out demons, when He does the little finger flick and gets it out of there, where does it go? Well, it says here, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And like I say, there are so many clues here and little things we can wonder about. But it passes through waterless places seeking rest. The idea that this unclean spirit is disembodied but is craving embodiment only actually finds rest in the embodiment of a, uh, of a water-bearing creature. Usually, hopefully a human or a pig if nothing else, right? And uh, seeking rest, not finding it, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. You know, any former demoniac is going to be vulnerable to future demonism unless by God's grace you can get them saved and then get armored up and and be protected against that. Because they want to go back. Demons are creatures of habit. They like to hunt things and they they stick where where they hunt. And so he says, hey, I'm going to go back. And when it comes it finds it swept and put in order. So it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man became worse than the first. And I have to wonder, how many times did Legion go through this procedure? You know, had he been expelled before and had seven more come back and then expelled again and then a hundred more came back and expelled again and then a whole Legion entered in there? I mean, who knows what his background was. 
And so that's the issue there. Anyway, it's a story I think we're familiar with. It's a good use of, isc- of iscus, and uh, we can learn some aspects there. All right, over to chapter 16, Luke 16 and verse 3. More strength. <laughs> I like this one. Because a steward gets fired, and he doesn't know what to do. So there was a rich man who had a manager, he had a steward. This is important in your dispensational studies. Understand, if you are a steward, then you are managing a household that's not yours. So a rich man who had a steward, a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. rich man said, look, this guy is blowing it. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. Right? This is the Donald Trump line, you're fired And the manager said to himself, this is really bad news now, he says, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. And I love that. To me, that hits us in our testing, that hits us in so many different ways where um, we find ourselves kind of entrapped, we find ourselves in a no-win scenario, we find ourselves in a spot where we, we... we're helpless. I mean, what do we do? We say, I don't, I'm too strong for that. I'm too proud for that. What do I do? <laughs> and uh, well, I've either got to find some strength somewhere or I've got to swallow my pride or I've got to do something. Um, how does this work? He says, oh, I know what I'll do. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this is an amazing story too. I just like that phrase, I am not strong enough to dig and uh, I am ashamed to beg. Acts 19 More strength in Acts 19. And uh, this also cracks me up. Here's some more exorcists, some more demons. And um, Paul is ministering here. I think this is the context for writing the book of Philippians. This ministry at Ephesus here in Acts chapter 19. And we know that uh, according to verse 10 he stayed there for two years. Actually he stayed there close to three years by the time they finally left. And um, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. Imagine that. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, imagine that. These guys had a racket going anyway for some time, uh, even back to Jesus' day and age when he was talking to the Pharisees about their sons and their exorcism racket. Um, But these guys thought, hey, that name of Jesus really works well, for Paul anyway. So they tried it. They said, uh, you know, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Yeah. And so, this just cracks me up, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) Who do you think you are, right? And so the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. This is your eskuo verb. I think this is your kata eskuo. Anyway, so then they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
you know, when one guy beats up seven another guys so badly that, you know, they're they're naked, that's uh yeah, that's that's a whooping. And uh and it's described that way. And uh, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And uh, many of those also who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, see. And this is what happens when, when the Lord's ministry hits in a particular area, and other people with that similar background uh, observe that, and then go, ooh, wait a minute, okay? Like when Paul mentions the mystery religions, all of those believers in Philippi that had that in their background, or maybe they were still toying with it. Because that, that whole mystery cult thing, you could do that on the side while you try to keep up this other religion going on over here. And uh, can't be doing that. All right. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found 50,000 pieces. That's a huge uh, amount of money there. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The verb prevailing is our strength verb that we're looking at tonight. That when God empowers you, when He endues you with His dunamis, you will prevail. There's no question. You have strength. I can do all things. I will prevail through the one that continually keeps pouring His strength into me. So that's Acts 19. Real quickly then, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 25 and 27. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. We recognize this when it comes to our strength, our ability, what we have going for us. What we have going for us is Jesus. Okay? And anything else we think we have going for us is a human thing that we've got to stop counting on. We've got to just count it, but scuba on and, and be done with it. And uh, just embrace the strength that God supplies. All right, well, we'll pick up here on Sunday, Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll uh, pick up Ephesians 1. Ephesians, we already saw Ephesians 6. Philippians 4 is our verse tonight. James 5.16. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It's a working prayer. It's the strong, I think it's, maybe I'm misquoting James 5.16. Double-checking myself. Yes. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man is strong for anything you need. Can accomplish much. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your strength. And we realize that it's strength that this world just doesn't understand. And yet, there it is. It's all power. And it's ours. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you for the teaching Holy Spirit. Thank you for the empowering Holy Spirit. For all things, Father, keep opening our eyes so we can live this truth out in a very functional way. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty.